Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 13. John 13. We learned last two weeks that Jesus has completed his public ministry to the crowds that have gathered around him. That these crowds recognize him as their Messiah, but as their kind of Messiah. And he really is their Messiah, but he's not the kind of Messiah that they expect him to be. In the next five chapters of John, now just think about that, the next five chapters, Jesus will be teaching his 12 apostles, well actually his 11 apostles, because we're going to see Judas leave quickly. Jesus will be teaching his apostles privately. Now this is a book of 21 chapters, and one quarter of that is devoted to Jesus' private teachings to his apostles and through his apostles to us. We're going to get insight into the nature of, of the kingdom, into the nature of heaven, and into the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ himself as we look at these next five chapters. And as we look at them, here again we're going to see that, that John differs from the synoptics. And you know what I mean by synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, they are called the synoptics because they basically look at Jesus from one general perspective. And that is as Jesus the man, the son of God. Whereas John, in his perspective, is bringing out Jesus, God, the man. And here again we see a, another difference between John and those other three gospels. And that is that the other three go into great detail about how the Lord Jesus Christ transitions from the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. That you go from the Passover of the Jews to Jesus instituting the, the Lord's Supper for the church. John doesn't say anything about the Lord's Supper. And John, though, goes into great detail in these five chapters about what Jesus teaches these disciples privately. The synoptics have almost nothing to say about that. So once again, we see evidence that when John wrote this by the inspiration of the Spirit, he's assuming that his readers have already read the other three Gospels. And what he's going to do is he's not going to waste ink covering things that they've already covered in detail. But he is going to pick up things that they've omitted in their Gospels. So having said that, let's read John chapter 13 verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around himself. Then he poured water into the wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet 
and to wipe them with the towel which he had tied around himself. So he came to Simon Peter. And he, Simon Peter, said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not realize now, but you will understand afterwards. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet ever. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. That's a lot to cover. In verses 1 through 3, we see that Jesus knows things that the twelve don't know yet. In verse 1, we're told, And knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Six times in this gospel, y'all stop. <laughs> Six times in this gospel, we've been told that Jesus' hour has not yet come. Now it's come. Now he knows that he is not far from the cross. And now the end of all things is about to be wrapped up. So he said he knew that his hour had come. The apostles didn't know that. He said he knew that he was going to depart out of this world. That he was going to go back to the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ knew who he was and who he is the apostles at this point still didn't have a full grasp of who he is the Lord Jesus Christ knew why he'd come to earth in Mark chapter 10 he says the son of man has come not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many they still after all the times that he's told them that he's going to be crucified by the high priest they still don't get it they still don't believe that that's going to happen to him the Lord Jesus Christ knew what was about to happen and they're still in denial they're still waiting for him to set himself up as king of Israel there in Jerusalem the Lord Jesus Christ knew where he was returning he was going back to the father he was going to be enthroned after his resurrection and ascension. He was going to be given rule over all the universe yet once again. 
Now he's known all of this since he was at least 12. Because you remember what happened in the temple when he was 12 years old? That they came down, his, he and his parents came down for the Passover to Jerusalem. They observed the Passover. His, they go back to uh, Nazareth. At least they think he's with them on the way back to Nazareth. And at the end of the day, they realize Jesus is nowhere around here. So they panic. They come back in a whole day's journey back into Jerusalem looking for him. Three days later, they find him in the temple sitting with the theological PhDs. And he's listening to them teach. Now here's this 12-year-old kid listening to them teach and asking them questions. And they're marveling at his answers and at the questions he's asking. And Mary comes up to him and says, Son, why have you treated me and your father like this? Referring to Joseph. Jesus knows who his father is. And he very respectfully says, Did you not know I must be about my father's business? Here. So since at least he's 12 years old, he's known who he is and why he's come and what's going to happen. And it says that having loved his own in the world, that's these 12 plus those others that are going to make up the 120 in the upper room after uh, his crucifixion and after his resurrection. Having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end. The word for love here is agape. And I'm going to give you a teaser. Uh, in three weeks, in the second service uh, at the mother church, I'm going to deal with this. About the, this kind of love of God. Or God's kind of love. But I'm not going to deal with it tonight. Other than to say this. When it says he loved them... That doesn't mean that he found in them something that was so attractive that he couldn't help but love them. No, he basically he loved them in spite of themselves. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the cross. He loved them unto his own death. Now, this morning I made a comment about God knowing who we were before the Lord Jesus ever bought us. The Lord Jesus knew what he was buying on the cross. He knows us. He knows us through and through. And yet he bought us anyway. He's not surprised when we fail. He's not shocked when we sin. He's grieved. But he's not shocked because he knew what he was buying. And he knew that the job's not finished yet. That he's still completing what he began in us. But get this. He bought us knowing what we are. He loved us then. He loves us to the end. Until he welcomes us into his father's house in heaven. And then in verse 4. Oh in verse 2 rather. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. And that Judas has made up his mind now. To betray him. The other apostles, they don't know that. And then in verse 3, he repeats, or John repeats for us, that Jesus knows who he is, where he came from, and where he's returning. 
And he knows that he himself is in complete control of all that's going to happen from here on out. Because the Father had committed into his hands all things. So that means that when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers and the mob come up to arrest him, he's in control. When Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And they fall to the ground. That's proof that he is in control. If he didn't want to be arrested, there is no way they could have arrested him. He is in control when they do arrest him. He is in control when they take him to Caiaphas and to Annas' house. He is in control when they spit on him, when they slap him, when they blindfold him, and when they drag him off to Pilate. He's in control at that trial. He's in control when they crucify him. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. They don't know that. The apostles don't realize that. And then finally in verses 4 through 11. Here's an aspect of God. This unexpected. This is an aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. This unexpected. And that's his humility. Unexpected humility. Notice in verse 4 it says that during supper. So as you know. In these days, they didn't sit at a chair at the supper table like we do. They had couches. And so you'd be propped up on one elbow and you'd reach out and you would take the food and you would eat it. And you'd be talking to other people around the table as you're leaning on these couches. So they're eating supper, reclining on the couches. (laughs) And Luke tells us in chapter 22 that the apostles were arguing about who was the greatest among them. Who is the greatest? And each one of them is trying to make his point that I'm the greatest among us. Because think about what's going to happen in their minds. At some point, I mean, he's got to do this. Jesus is going to go up to the temple. He's going to be proclaimed to be the king of Israel. He's going to drive the Romans out miraculously. He's going to establish the kingdom of Israel. He's going to use all of his miraculous powers to make Israel the most prosperous, the most powerful nation it had ever been. All the way from the Euphrates River to the Mediterranean Sea. They're going to know an era of prosperity and greatness and health that they've not known since the days of Solomon. The Messiah is here. The Messianic age is here. The average age of a man before he dies is going to be 100 years old. This is wonderful. Almost like heaven coming to earth. We know that he's going to do this. And so, I'm going to be a secretary of state. No, I'm going to be the secretary of state. No, no, you guys have got it wrong. If anybody's going to be a secretary of state, I'm going to be the secretary of state. Well, Judas will be the treasurer. but who? And they're just arguing on who's going to have the greatest position in the kingdom that the Lord Jesus Christ, they assume, is about to set up. And Jesus is listening and watching. And in the midst of all this, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be served by who? 
he gets up from the table and I'm sure they all turn around and look at him because he's getting up and he takes off his robe and he goes over and he takes a towel now the towel would have been a long towel because it's the towel that the lowest slave in a household would use to wash the dirty feet of the people coming into the house he takes that towel he wraps it around himself like a slave would and they're watching and he pours water out of a pitcher into a basin and then he goes around to each of the apostles and washes their dirty feet and they're stunned and they're embarrassed they've been talking about who's going to be the greatest and who's going to serve who and here's their Messiah here's their almost king here is the man they recognized as the son of God taking the role of the lowest slave in a household and doing the most objectionable job that any slave in a household would have to do we've got to remember that in these days even if you had paved streets in a place like Jerusalem Nazareth, Bethany they don't have paved streets you've got just dirt streets I've seen pictures of, of this road out here Hamlet Avenue back at the turn of the century all these buildings are here but it's nothing but sand in the street there's, there's no pavement out there it's just a sand street out there and that's the way it was in this day so if you're wearing sandals which is what everybody wears or going barefoot your feet are going to get dusty and dirty that's not the worst part the worst part is that the streets were often used for sewers so you take your cooking refuse and throw it in the street you take your honey pot that was under your bed at night you throw that in the street the dogs and the other animals and the, horse and the, the, the mules and the donkeys they're doing their business out in the street and so to be walking in a street in the average city in this day you're not only going to get dirty feet you're going to get filthy feet so it was the most objectionable the most humiliating job for a slave to do in a household was to wash the feet of people when they're coming into the house that's what Jesus is doing and they see it and they can't understand what are you doing yeah, we should be washing your feet why are you washing our feet you're the king why are you washing our feet and it's just I can imagine dead silence in the room they've been all arguing now it's just dead silence and Jesus comes to Peter thank the Lord for Peter I have hope because of Simon Peter <clears throat> Paul Paul makes me wonder about myself you know but Simon Peter thank you Lord if you save Peter you'll save me he comes to Peter and Peter says are you going to wash my feet because he's thinking Lord I ought to be washing your feet and Jesus says to him what I'm doing now you don't understand now but you will later 
And Simon Peter, in typical Peter fashion, says, You will never wash my feet. You will never wash my feet, ever. There's no doubt that Peter is absolutely committed to Jesus as his Lord. There's no doubt about that. But he's got this bad habit from time to time of thinking he knows what Jesus ought to do better than Jesus knows what Jesus ought to do. Do you remember? And he'll contradict his Lord. I mean, that's an oxymoron. Contradicting your Lord. Hmm. You remember that in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has just told him, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be crucified in Jerusalem. And after three days, I will rise. And Peter takes him off to the side. I can see him grabs him by the sleeve and pulls him off to the side. And he said, God forbid, this will never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because you're only mindful about the things of men. What you guys are going to get, you think. You're not mindful of the things of God. Do you remember when he was in Joppa and the, the sheet came down from heaven three times? And God spoke from heaven every time the sheet came down. And there's all kinds of animals in the sheet, including unclean animals. Animals that Jews were not allowed to eat. And the fact that the clean animals were in contact with the unclean animals made the clean animals unclean. And God speaks from heaven and says, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. And what does Peter say? No, Lord. You can't say, no, Lord. It just, that's contradictory. But this is Peter. And Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus patiently corrects him and says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter hears that and says, in that case, Lord, don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands and my head. Peter's correcting Jesus again. And so Jesus corrects Peter again. And he says, you only need to have your feet washed. He who is bathed only needs to have his feet washed. You're already clean, but not all of you. You see, if you were being invited to a dinner party or just supper at a friend's house back in these days, before you go to supper at your friend's house, of course, after the day's work, you're going to take a bath. You would bathe. So you'd be clean when you got to his house, except for your feet. Because of what I said about the streets. When you got to his house, you're ready. You're clean. You just need to wash your feet now. Jesus is going to explain to Peter, or going to explain to us in just a few minutes, what this is all about. Then he says, in verse 12... Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, 
the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent, that is, apostolos, an apostle, is not greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus says, put his clothes back on. He's reclined back at the table. And he says, do you know what I've done to you? They go, yes, sir. I've given you an example of how you ought to serve one another. The word there, when it says, um, verse 14. You call him, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The word translated ought there is stronger than what we mean by ought. It's de'i. De'i means you are obligated. You must do this. He's saying, if I, your master, washed your feet, you are obligated now, because of who I am, to wash one another's feet. And what he's talking about is serving one another. That consider, as Paul says, consider one another as better than yourself and serve them. Serve them to help them grow in grace. Serve them with any sort of true needs they may have in this world. Not every little want and every little quirk, but if someone in the body has a need, take care of it. Put yourself under them as their servant. One of the requirements for Christian leadership is servanthood. If someone's going to be a leader in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they have to be the servant of all. In Luke's gospel, during, at this time, he includes something that John left out. In Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus says to them, when he's talking to them about the service here, that the elder must be as the younger among you, and the leader as the one who serves say then are we obligated to wash one one another's feet in the church as some sort of ritual or ordinance like the Lord's Supper or like baptism no that's not what Jesus is talking about he's not talking about literal foot washing it's interesting that in the book of Acts which is the history of the early church a detailed history of the early church there's no mention of foot washing in there at all Nowhere in the New Testament is foot washing ever mentioned again. So Jesus isn't talking about doing this as some sort of ritual. This is some sort of symbol of humility. What he's saying to them is, have this attitude among yourselves that you're going to serve one another. But there's something more important than a lesson in Christian service in this passage right here. Look at verse 10 again. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, 
but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Now, I told you to mark Philippians chapter 2 in your Bibles. I want you to go there now. Philippians chapter 2. We're talking about this unexpected humility that we see in the Lord Jesus here. We're, we see this incident and we think, is this the first time that Jesus ever humbled himself like this to serve his disciples? And it's not. We have to remember who this is that we're talking about. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the creator of the universe. John's already told us in John 1.1. Or excuse me, John 1.3. All things were created by him and without him nothing was created that was created. This is the one who is <clears throat> eternal. He's been with the Father from the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This is the one who is also God himself, and the Word was God. Colossians tells us, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. The universe and angelic powers are created for this man reclining at the table with you tonight. This Jesus. Everything was made by him. Everything is for him. And he just washed your feet. But this isn't the first time he's humbled himself like this. Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 5. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 6 says, Jesus, from all of eternity, existed in the form of God. The word form there is morphe. It means it's the outward display of the inner reality. From all of eternity, Jesus is in heaven as God. He is displayed as God. When the angels look at him, they see God the Son. The reality of his existence is he is God. And yet he did not consider his godness something to be grasped and held on to and clutched at all costs. Especially after man fell on the earth. But it says, although existing in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. He set aside, he emptied out all of his privileges. 
Didn't set aside who he was. Didn't empty out anything that he was. But he set aside all of his privileges. All of the privileges of being glorified by men on earth. In other words, what we should have done when we saw him. If he had appeared to us as God Almighty, we would have marveled. We would have been amazed. We would have fallen down. We would have worshipped him. He set all that aside. And he says he was found taking the form of a slave. He made himself a slave to his father's will. To save a people. To save sinners. And he made himself a slave to us. Think about it. He leaves heaven. There, here is God coming to earth. God who has always been self-existent, self-sufficient, and self-satisfied. Needing nothing. And he's born as a baby in a dirty stable. Helpless. No longer self-sufficient. He needs everything. He needs food. He has to be fed because he can't feed himself. He needs to have his diaper changed. He needs rest and sleep. He's never rested or slept in, in the history of the universe. He's never needed to. He's God. He doesn't get tired. But now he does. And for the first time in his existence, God the Son feels physical pain, physical hunger, physical thirst. He humbled himself to become one of us. But that's not all. He humbled himself to experience spiritual pain, spiritual agony among us. We sang holy, holy, holy. That's what the angels, that's what the cherubim and the seraphim sang and chanted about him in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. That's him. And he comes to earth to a fallen earth, to an earth inhabited by sinners, to an earth polluted by sin. You remember the Habakkuk 1.13 says, You, Yahweh, are of purer eyes than to gaze on sin, than to look at sin. That God can't look on sin approvingly. It's utterly contrary to his nature. And here he is, as a boy and as a man, everywhere he looks, every person he looks at, Everything that he comes in contact with is polluted by sin. He's surrounded by sin. He's, I speak as a fool. He's drowning in a world of sin. It's all around him. He can't escape it. It had to have been like acid on his spirit to have all this, have to come into contact personally with all of this that is so utterly contrary to everything that he is. And he's unrecognized. He, he humbles himself in the fact that nobody recognizes him. Uh, you remember this morning 
when we were looking in John 1 says the Bible says that he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world did not know him nobody recognized him for who he was I mean who is he he's, he's in Nazareth as a little boy he's the illegitimate son of Joseph and Mary that's who he is in their eyes he's this nobody sinners that he created sinners that owe their very lives to him consider him to be a nobody they treat him with contempt they despise him as a nobody probably when he was running an errand for his mom in Nazareth if he was running down the street and somebody else wanted to be where he was they just shove him out of the way get out of the way kid he may have been stolen from as an adult He's a nobody. They despise him. He's nothing. He humbled himself. He took that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter is going to defend him with that sword that he can't, doesn't even know how to use right against soldiers, Jesus says, put your sword away. Don't you know that I could call for 12 legions of angels? One angel destroyed 185,000 Assyrians in one night during the reign of King Hezekiah. I can call for 12 legions, about 60,000 angels if I need them to defend me. He could have called down anything, but he put up with it. He humbled himself. He humiliated himself. He put up with being treated in contempt. He put up with having to, wa- having to have sin just wash all over him. That's when he humbled himself. This putting on a towel and washing their feet, this is nothing compared to what he's been through all of his life. Day after day, year after year, he's humbled himself. And then he took the form of a slave. And he was obedient unto death. Even though he was in control, he humbled himself to be obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. And we're back in John chapter 13 and verse 10. And that's what it's all about here in verse 10. The cross. Jesus says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But is completely clean and you are clean you are clean you're cleansed from your sin I've saved you from your sin you're no longer polluted by your sin he's going to go to the cross he's going to take all of the wrath of God for all of our sin on himself and he's going to pay it in full And he's going to forgive us fully for all our sin. John 1, 1 John 1, 7 says that we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. That's how he bathes us. It's with his own blood. And he cleanses us from all sin. But as I said this morning, we're not glorified yet. 
And so therefore, in our flesh, because of our flesh, because of our indwelling's flesh, we stumble, we sin. We sin by thinking what we're thinking. We sin by actually sometimes saying what we're thinking, the sin. And then sometimes we actually do what is sinful. And yet he's made a way of cleansing us from those. When we trust the Lord Jesus Christ, he cleansed us entirely from all sin. But it's like walking to that supper as we walk through every day because we're not completed yet, because we're not finished yet, because we're not glorified yet, because we're not fully conformed to the image of Christ yet. Our flesh gets up from time to time over something, over this, over that. And we sin. People in North Carolina, some of the worst drivers on the face of the earth. If you don't believe me, just try driving up 220. Well, you know what it's like. You're driving along, they come flying by, you cut you off and immediately take the exit. You're having to put on brakes to keep from rear-ending them. And so what do you say? Be warm, be filled. Bless you. May the Lord bless you. No, you don't. If you're alone in the car, you say something out loud. But if Eric or Bob or Jonathan's in the car with you, you just... Because we're more afraid of being thought bad of by a pastor than we are by God. So we pick up dirt during the day. We get our feet dirty as we're walking along through the day. And he washes our feet every day. That's what it's all about. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These poor boys have no clue what he's talking about. Not yet. But he says there in verse 17, he's talking to them about serving one another, but now he's talking to us about trusting. He says, if you, if you in this room right now know these things, you are blessed if you do them. It's one thing to know it, it's another thing to do it. So what are we saying? If you know that you're to treat your brothers and sisters in Christ as better than you, do it. If you know that as our Lord has commanded us, we should serve one another for their spiritual good and for their material good when they need it, do it. And if you know that he has cleansed you from your sins and that he will cleanse you from what you pick up during the day, if you confess it, do it. Blessed are you if you do it. And he's done all of this for us, freely, by grace. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Stand with me, please. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. 
Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And we're dismissed.